Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. If you would, please at home navigate to Romans chapter 2, that passage that was just read. And uh, as you turn there, I'd like to pause for another word of prayer. Father, I pray that, uh, Lord, as we hear your word read and taught, preached this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help us to not only be hearers of it, but doers. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the insufficiency of our own righteousness, Lord, that we might run wholeheartedly and trust only in Christ, his righteousness. Lord, feed and encourage your flock today through your word. We'll give you the glory for it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. the Gospel of John, we are told of a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus who was drawn to Jesus really because of, of the signs and wonders that he was performing. And, and he knew that someone doing the things that Jesus was doing must have been sent from God. There was really no other explanation for it. And, and yet he was still cautious. He came to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness, he, uh, I believe, was still undecided and perhaps living in hypocrisy. Jesus sensed it immediately. He said to him, John chapter 3, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus wondered, what Jesus meant by that, and of course, he didn't mean that we could somehow re-enter into our mother's womb and be born again. Nicodemus was still thinking merely on the physical plane by asking that, but the rebirth that Jesus speaks of here in John chapter 3 was was not a starting over again of the same type of thing, the same flesh entering back into her mother's womb, but it was a dying to the self and starting over with a new creation by the power of the Spirit. We must first die before we can be born again. Let me say that again. We must first die before we can be born again. Jesus said it in another way here in John chapter 12 and verse 24. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. C.S. Lewis said in, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Think about that. Do you want to experience the rebirth of God? And first, you must die to your old self, 
Do you want to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ as the good news that it is? Then first you need to wrestle with the bad news and, and the effect that it has on you that feels like death. You say, I, I hear bad news all week. I don't want to focus on any more bad news. And I acknowledge there is an awful lot of bad news out there right now. But if you can see and understand here where we're headed, it is actually the bad news of God's judgment well-deserved by sinners like you and me that actually makes the gospel of his deliverance from that judgment by faith alone so sweet. It is the bad news that makes the good news so sweet. Charles Wesley wrote, the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. How did Wesley do that? How did he get to a place in his own life where he could genuinely write those words, where he could genuinely sing those words from the heart. Where, where you say to God, God, not only do I want to praise you from the tongue that I have, but, oh Lord, may it be amplified from my heart as if I had a thousand tongues. Oh Lord, give me a thousand tongues to sing the triumphs of your grace. You get there by, I believe, facing the heavy truth about, about our own unrighteousness here in, in Romans chapters 1 through 3. Paul just is hammering us. It's just hammer, hammer, hammer. It's the longest section, I think, in the New Testament, hammering this truth. I was sitting at my desk this morning getting ready for the sermon, and I could hear a woodpecker <laughs> in the background. Just, I just thought, man, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's just hammering home this truth that there is no one righteous, no, not one, not among the nations with the Gentiles, not among the Jews, not among those living in open depravity and immorality in Romans chapter 1, not those living in secret depravity and hypocrisy here in Romans chapter 2. The righteousness of, of man is sort of like a a flimsy straw hut in the middle of a forest that's been set ablaze. It's going to offer no quarter, no protection. Will not protect you from the wrath of God to come. And so really it's a benevolent thing here that Paul's doing and pointing out to us that we are taking refuge in insufficient structures. And that, my friends, is why I am spending now a third week on the topic of our hypocrisy and God's impartiality in the judgment from Romans chapter 2. My purpose is not simply to beat you down to no purpose. No, we, we are traversing a, a necessary path downward where we die to ourselves that we may make a sudden swing up word into indescribable resurrection and, and new life. When you understand the gospel, you understand that the way down is really the way up. 
And this is so important, my friends. This, this, this topic in particular is so important for those of us who would, on a beautiful Sunday morning, tune in to hear someone else preach the word of God. Those of us who consider ourselves religious, not in the, the worst sense of the word, but in the best sense of that word. This topic of hypocrisy is so important because it is possible to be deeply, deeply religious and yet for your heart to be far, far from God. We've already been looking at this now for for two weeks and we've already seen, first of all here, that Paul starts this chapter by, by insisting that hypocrisy is really without excuse The key verse here being verse 1 where Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's a principle of God's judgment here, that God's judgment is according to our knowledge. When we the ones in the know look out at someone else, especially someone that maybe isn't even in the know, and we we look at them and we condemn in them something that we then can condone in ourselves. Paul says we are really actually condemning ourselves. We're really only providing evidence that we ourselves knew better and yet did it anyway. God's judgment is according to our knowledge, so hypocrisy is without excuse And then last week here, we transitioned to the next section of this chapter here where Paul is really continuing to build his case here that hypocrisy is actually a very tragic mistake. We, we saw another principle of God's judgment here that God's judgment is impartial. Key verse being, once again, the first verse of the paragraph here, verse 6, where Paul writes that God will render to each one according to his works. It's a surprise to the Jews to, even though they knew that truth, to have that truth applied to them because they viewed themselves as being in a position of privilege, perhaps exempt from the judgment of God. But Paul insists, know that God will render to each one according to his works. He shows no partiality. And we spoke last week about how there really are two paths the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And it's not enough to say that you are on the path of the righteous heading north when all signs indicate that you're actually speeding 55 miles an hour the other direction, headed south towards destruction. It's hypocrisy. Paul's warning here in this section that God's impartial judgment will in the end find you out. And this doesn't in any way contradict the message of justification by faith that we are saved by faith and faith alone that Paul's going to be spending so much time on in this letter. It doesn't contradict it even in the least. Paul's merely asserting that we are not saved by faith that is alone. Right? We are saved by grace through faith alone, but we are also his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Works not done by our strength or to our glory, but to his glory alone. You must actually be on the path of righteousness through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You must be heading 
towards the Lord, not away from Him in actuality in order to be saved in the end. And those who were saying they were headed that direction but actually heading the other direction were committing hypocrisy and they were fooling themselves. God's judgment is impartial. And that brings us now to another the, the, the next paragraph here, verses 12 through 16, where in another principle of God's judgment where we see that God's impartial judgment is according to the light we have received. Look at verse 12. Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The law in these verses is referring to the law of God given to his people through Moses, call it the Mosaic Law, really comprising the first five books of the Old Testament and, and really being the foundation of the entire Old Testament. And so those without the law of Moses are the Gentiles here in this verse, and Paul says they will perish without the law. And those under the law are the Jews, Paul says they will be judged by the law. Does that seem harsh? Does it seem unfair or, or partial to you in any way? God's judgment here, you need to understand, is impartial. It is completely fair. God's judgment is going to be according to the light we have received. And the truth is that some have received more light than others. Right, let's acknowledge that. Some have received more light than others. The Jews, for example, received a brilliant light in the Mosaic Law, didn't they? Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 130 of that psalm says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. In the Word of God, just a, a special revelation of, of God's character and His will. It instructs us. It lights our path. It's a wonderful gift of light. And the Jews received that. Right? That was in their possession. It was theirs. But here's the problem, Paul says. That mere possession of that light, while it's a distinct advantage, is not enough. Look at verse 13. Paul says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You can't just have it. You can't just have the light. You can't just hear the word. You have to do it. So the Jews, they received this brilliant light, but meanwhile, on the other hand, the Gentiles didn't possess this brilliant light of the Mosaic law. So how can God judge them? Well, we already saw in Romans Chapter 1, verse 19, that God still generally reveals himself to all men through his creation. There's enough in his creation to look out and see that, man, somebody made this who is powerful and eternal and glorious. But now we also see here in this context, in this paragraph, that God also has written the work of the law, the, that is the requirements of the law, even though they don't have the actual commandments, the, the sense of the requirement of it is written on each man's heart. The Gentiles have this, this requirement written on their hearts. 
Look at verses 14 and 15 here. Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I believe Paul is referring here to what is often called the law of human nature, a moral law written on the heart. Why is it that no matter where I am in this world, if I come up to someone else and I, I beat them up and I take all of their belongings and rob them, that I will be quickly tracked down and maybe even imprisoned for not just being not nice, not just for being the fittest among many, but tracked down for doing something wrong, something evil, something that needs to be punished. My family and I got this new outdoor game that uh, is called Spikeball. Actually, we got the knockoff version. It was a little cheaper. It's called Slamo. And uh, we were so excited to play this game. It's a, a game where you set up a net and there's a ball that you kind of spike into the middle and you keep it up kind of like volleyball. It's something you could play on the beach or in your backyard. We were, it's kind of one of those corona things. We were trying to get out of the house. And uh, we were so excited to play it that we set it up and we just started playing it without really reading and clarifying and establishing the rules with one another. We just started playing the game. And I'll tell you, it must, we must have been a pretty funny sight to behold uh, as we were playing this game. We started bickering with one another about, you know, what was a point and what wasn't a point and uh, whose turn it was and, and uh, what was a legal play or not. But why is it when it comes to the basics of morality that there seems to be a standard set of rules that everyone just sort of seems to know? whether they have a, a copy of the rules or not? Is it not because God has written the requirements of the law on the heart? And even those not under the Mosaic law demonstrate through a guilty conscience and conflicting thoughts at one time accusing and then excusing themselves that they knew the basics of right and wrong and yet they still did the wrong. Right? It's a lesser light, admittedly, to have this law merely writ the requirement of written on your heart. But even this, our conscience, our own conscience verifies that even that we, we, we cross that, those lines even in our own hearts that we know are right and wrong. And Paul speaks here in verse 16 of a judgment day when God will judge the secrets of the heart by Christ Jesus. Our own consciences will condemn us on that day. We aren't held accountable for the, the light that we never received, but the truth is we all have received enough light to be held accountable and to be condemned. There is no righteousness of man that we can cling to on our own. And you... I hope you see just so clearly from this text that God's judgment is completely impartial and it is completely fair. Paul has leveled the playing field here and we see so clearly that all have enough light 
to be condemned. Well, in this next paragraph here, we see another principle of God's judgment, verses 16 through 23. We sort of overlap here, these ideas. We see that God's judgment will include our secrets, and he's just applied that principle, I think, to the Gentiles. Just rebuke them for the the secrets of their hearts. And lest the Jews' hearts be puffed up with pride, Paul now turns to his Jewish brethren and rebukes them for their inconsistency. And he's basically saying here, you don't practice what you preach. First he lists eight of their privileges before then asking them four heart-probing questions. First, the, the privileges. Now, keep in mind, Paul is not denigrating these wonderful privileges in and of themselves but he is confronting the abuse of those privileges, the presumption that comes along with with privilege. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, that is taking upon yourself the, the, uh, the name of the people of God, and if you rely on the law, that is the word of God, if you rely on the word of God, and if you boast in God, and we, we, he means here not boasting in a sinful sense, but boasting in the sense that Jeremiah 9 talks about, which was our Old Testament reading this morning, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's a good thing to boast in the Lord as opposed to other things. So Paul is saying, if you call yourself, number yourself amongst the, the, the people of God, and if you rely upon the word of God, and if you boast in God, And if you know God's will and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, you know it's it's easier to know the will of God than to do it. But Paul says if you know it because you've been instructed from the word of God, and not only is it easier to know it than to do it, but it's a lot easier to teach it than to do it. He says if you are sure that you are able to teach others, look at verses 19 and 20 here. He says, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, right? if you're able to teach other people, it's really what the, the Jewish nation was intended to be. That was to be their mission, to be a light to the Gentiles. They weren't to keep it to themselves. And Paul says, if you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then, then, he has four heart-probing questions here that I'm sure as a, as a former hypocritical Jew that he has probed his own heart with. He says, why haven't you been humbled by these things to the point of repentance? He says, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Verse 21. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What does that mean, that last one there? You who abhor idols, but do you rob temples? I think it means that a a Jew could hypocritically appear to abhor an idol, to abhor a pagan temple, and yet meanwhile, in the destruction of it, take those materials to himself and profit from it. Pagan temples were built with expensive materials, and it was possible to have a profit motive in destroying an idol. 
instead of devoting its contents to, to destruction like the law said that they were to do. Hypocrisy. And, you know, these, these three things here that, that were listed, stealing and adultery and robbing temples, I, I don't think that Paul thought that every Jew had committed these three specific sins. These are just three examples, but they establish a pattern that could be applied to any of God's commandments. Fill in the blank, any of God's commandments. Do you do that yourself? Paul's saying. And the point is actually quite simple. Paul says you, you don't practice what you preach. And on that day when when God judges the secret hearts of men through His Christ, this will be exposed. It's a problem. He says in verse 23 that in reality you are dishonoring God by boasting in the law and then breaking it. And that brings us to our, our final point here, and that is that hypocrisy is downright blasphemous. Look at verse 23 and 24. Paul says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Lord says in Isaiah 52, 5, All day long my name is constantly blasphemed. And Ezekiel 36, 22, This is what the sovereign Lord says It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. If you ever want to wonder why you have been saved, is it not for the sake of his name? Yet what does it mean to blaspheme? It means Breaking the third commandment. What is the third commandment? The third commandment is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord your God in vain? It certainly includes not using God's name as a, as a swear word, right? Dragging his name through the mud, using it to curse someone else or something else. But that's not all the command refers to, is it? Did you know that you can also blaspheme the name of God by the way you live as a believer by taking the name of the holy God upon yourself and yet going out the door and living in unholiness? Hypocrisy blasphemes the holy God and breaks the third commandment. Paul applies this here immediately to the Jews for one major way that they took the name of the Lord in vain was through a superstitious view of circumcision. It was to be the sign of the covenant of their special relationship with God, their special election as the people of God. Paul says here in verse 25, for circumcision is, indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? This is the part of Paul's gospel presentation where as he's traveling around the known world and he would go to the Jew first. 
He would enter into their synagogues. And this was the point of his gospel presentation where they would have heard enough. They'd, they would be gnashing their teeth and sticking their fingers in their ears and, and calling for the authorities. It's so offensive to say that here in verse 26 that a man uncircumcised keeping the precepts of the law that his uncircumcision would be regarded as, as circumcision. Meanwhile, in verse 27, that he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but breaks the law. I'm sorry, but verse 28 here. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The Jews valued their circumcision as an almost certain sign of their election. But circumcision was intended to be an external sign of an internal reality, but the sign had become merely a ritual, merely a surgery performed in the flesh. They, they thought that if they had the physical sign, then they were immune from the wrath of God. But Paul boldly declares here that a circumcised Jew who breaks the law actually renders his circumcision as if it were uncircumcision. What value does the external sign have if it doesn't match an internal reality? It has no value. We could say the same thing. We could apply the same thing to a Christian. What value is baptism or church membership or communion or fill in any other ritual that we have if it is not portraying a born-again life? We could say the same thing of a wedding ring on the finger of an adulterer. What value is the wedding ring if it doesn't represent faithfulness to your wedding vows? Now, Ironically and extremely controversially, Paul is actually telling his fellow Jews here that an uncircumcised Gentile who obeys the law will actually be considered the true circumcision before God. Paul says that the obedient, physically uncircumcised Gentile will sit in judgment over the disobedient, circumcised Jew True religion is not a matter of the flesh, but a matter of the heart. True religion is not by the letter of the law, but by the Holy Spirit of that law. True religion seeks approval not from humans, but from God. It is so now, and it has always been so. Paul says that the believing Gentiles who had no external reasons to boast in so little light, but who through Jesus Christ have been born again to new spiritual life, were the true Jews. That they were the true circumcision. They were the ones who now were receiving the praise from God. And so what should we conclude here at the end of this chapter after three weeks of discussing the, the dangers of hypocrisy. I think there's no greater takeaway for us here than this application. 
the application that Paul ends with here at the very end of the chapter when he basically says that outward conformity without inner transformation is useless. More than that, it's dangerous because it gives a false hope. More than that, it's downright blasphemous. How can you tell if you are a a true believer? How can you tell if you are a true believer who is just struggling with indwelling sin? I I don't know about you, but there are sins in my life that I seem seem to trip me up on a regular basis. How do I I know that whether I'm a true believer struggling with sin or whether I'm a hypocrite? Right? It's a it's a good question. Let me answer that question with a, a couple of questions of my own. First, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Is your hope in your performance or in Christ? Is your hope in external rites and rituals and privileges? Is your hope in allegiance to family or country or church? Or is it in Christ alone? Where is your hope? Secondly, where is your praise? Where is your praise coming from? Are you looking for the praise of God or are you looking for the praise of men? That's a complicated question to ask yourself, isn't it? We're so prone to even deceiving ourselves on this matter. I take prescription here from Jesus who prescribed regular acts of secret righteousness as a remedy for hypocritically lusting after the praise of men. We need to train our hearts to seek praise from God and not praise from men. Where is your praise coming from? Where is your posture when convicted of sin? I heard it put this way this week. When you feel convicted about your sin, do you find yourself taking God's part against your sin or your sin's part in defending it to God? Do you see the difference there? The the hypocrite will side with his own sin and try to justify himself to God. Whereas the true believer joins God, looking at the sin in his own life, and says, God, I hate this sin, Lord. If I could rip it out of my chest, I would. Lord, forgive me. Seeks refuge and deliverance in Jesus Christ alone. What is your posture when convicted of your sin? Finally, has your mouth ever been stopped by God? Need to remember where we're headed here Paul's going to conclude here in the next chapter in just a a few verses, and we're headed to here in the next couple of weeks. He's going to conclude, finally hammering away on this bad news. And his goal is going to be what we read here in in chapter 3, verse 19. 
where Paul says that every mouth must be stopped and the whole world must be held accountable to God. I heard a, a rather grotesque illustration this week that I, I want to apologize in advance for, for using, uh, but I'm using it because it so memorably makes its point. Did you know that when Elizabeth I executed Mary, Mary, Queen of Scots, they say that her mouth continued to open and close for nearly 30 minutes. Isn't that, isn't that terrible? Isn't that grotesque? I, I'm sorry to, to put that image in your head this morning. And, and I know that there's a, a physiological explanation for that, and I'm not interested in, in that aspect of it this morning, but I, I'm more interested in the way that, that this grotesque illustration here illustrates where we are as sinners by nature. A dead corpse that continues to mouth off to God. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way. He said, Scripture tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But we will insist on talking back to God and our mouths keep opening and closing, opening and closing, opening and closing and arguing with him. Saying we're not as bad as he paints us to be. And we're better than others. And who does he think he is anyway invading our lives? Paul is saying here, this is why judgment is such an important part of the gospel. Because until my self-righteousness and self-centeredness are pulled down, the kingdom of Christ will not be built in my life. End quote. Oh, my friends, once... Once your mouth has been stopped by God and you realize that you have nothing on which to stand and you have nothing of your own to shield you from the wrath of God and then suddenly you, you hear the sweet sound of the gospel, the sweet news that there is a way to have Righteousness that is not according to the flesh, but according to faith. God steps in and, and he saves you. Not because of works done by you in hypocritical self-righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And he washes you and regenerates you and makes you anew by the power of his Holy Spirit and brings you into his adopts you and calls you a son or a daughter. And when that happens, my friend, then you will find welling up inside yourself the desire to amplify this truth a thousandfold. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Let's pray.